This is the Gender Card Podcast from Griffith University's Gender Equality Research Network. I'm Nance Haxton, and together we will speak to the vanguard of remarkable researchers breaking down the issues of gender equality, women's leadership and gender inclusivity in all realms of life. We know what geography is, but what about human geography? Dr Natalie Osborne investigates the links between the person, the society and the physical space around us. She focuses on social and environmental justice in human settlements and the development of more just, resilient and sustainable futures. And she's finding there's more than just history and politics at play. Natalie, welcome to the Gender Card Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Nan. Thanks for joining us. And I want to hear about a human geographer. I know what geography is. Mm. Not really sure what a human geographer is. Can you explain that for us? Yeah, it's really just about adding people to place and then stirring, really. <laughs> um, so in human geography, we're particularly interested in the ways in which people experience and produce places and spaces, but also the way that spaces and places produce us and the many, many ways that we're entangled with them. And basically any question you possibly ask has a spatial component, right? Oh, so there's a bit of interplay there. Yeah, oh. so it's definitely about, um, in the way that like a historian might consider things with a temporal lens, a geographer considers things through a spatial lens. So we could look at everything from, you know, we're speaking into this microphone. A human geographer might be interested in how the space we're in produces the kinds of conversations that you and I are about to have. They might also be interested in tracing the materials in this microphone and tracing them back through space and thinking about the places in which they come from and what those networks and, and distances travelled tell us about the ways we organise our worlds. Well, it makes sense, I suppose, doesn't it? Even here at a university, it's not a university of just buildings. It's how people interplay with that space and it, it really changes it both ways. Exactly. And I mean, we think about this a lot in something like teaching, right? So the kinds of conversations you have when you stand up the front of one of those tiered lecture theatres, you know, that suggests a particular kind of authority. It kind of makes the lecturer seem like this kind of slightly terrifying person um, and, and can set up barriers between people. Students are all looking in one direction. Whereas if you move into a different kind of space where we're all kind of facing each other, we're all on the same level, that opens up different kinds of ways that we can relate to each other as learners. It does. And it even almost dictates the way that that speech is going to be given, doesn't it, depending totally. on the space that you're in? Yeah, 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 absolutely. If you put people behind a podium, they will just use a podium, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, sometimes thinking about the ways in which um, space shapes behaviour and shapes the way we connect to each other, often in ways that you're not really aware of until you really turn the gaze in, because often space is just like this this kind of hidden thing, or we think about it as a backdrop to our lives when actually it's... Um, it's so much more than backdrop. It's it's in everything. It's actually producing the kinds of interactions we're capable of having. Fantastic. It sounds incredibly multi-layered. How did you end up in this area of research? Yeah, like, like most things in my life, I, I got there out of... Um, you know, fury and <laughs> and you know, like a sense of righteous indignation. Um, <laughs> I I got really interested in thinking about cities. I got really interested in you know I was always always identified from very young age as, as a feminist, as someone who was really concerned with with questions of justice. 
I became really interested in the environmental and ecological components of justice. So thinking about the ways that environmental harms are distributed unevenly. Some of us bear um, more exposure to others to things like toxicity or dangerous land uses or unpleasant land uses. Then I learned that those those things are unevenly distributed according to things like social positioning. So if you're a person of colour, for instance, um, if you're poor, live in a poor community, you're far more likely to have be be living near kind of dangerous or hazardous land uses. You're also, chances are, probably going to have poorer access to public transport. You're going to have poorer access to the kind of social and community infrastructure that help help us build our lives. So, um, yeah, I, I got into this area because I just got really interested in this interplay between environmental harm, issues of sustainability and ecological degradation with how that also interplays with our social positioning and how we, how we live together in cities. I mean, even from my perspective as a journalist, I can think of so many stories of the the woeful environmental things that have happened perhaps in Papua New Guinea or places like that. I mean, there just seems to be such a a clear correlation there. But what did you find in your research? Gosh, such a big question. Yeah, it is, I mean, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I, mean I, I tend to work really locally um, for, for practical reasons as well as ethical reasons. So looking around Brisbane, we can see some of the big kind of spatial injustices or examples of spatial injustices we have here in Brisbane exist around things like housing, access to affordable housing, the sort of conditions that renters live their lives under. You know, we have we have pretty difficult rental laws here, not a huge amount of rights for renters. But then there's also there's also deeper histories to that too, right? Because this land we're on is, is meandering stolen land, land that belongs to the Jagger and Turrbal people. So when we're talking about planning in this place or we're talking about how we build cities and build lives in this place, there's that fundamental injustice that underpins all of that and underpins all of our lives in, in settler colonial Australia. And then we can also think about things like access to, to public space. So this is a thing that sometimes on the surface is like, oh, public space, that's public, right? Everyone has free access to that. But some users and uses of public space are sort of deemed acceptable, deemed permittable, socially, legally, and others aren't. So things like one of the things that I'm interested in are the ways in which our ability to access and use public space is also mediated by social position. So... For instance, um, you know, one of the things that uh, we talk about a lot in planning is the subtle clues that landscapes suggest about who belongs there. Really? Yeah. So if you've ever, you know, when you go and sit on a park bench and there'll be a weird armrest in the middle of the park bench or like little metal studs along the seat? Yes. Yeah, that's to prevent homeless people from sleeping there or lying down, right? Spending too much time there. Sometimes those studs are there to prevent skateboarders from using the space. You know, there's all these little subtle clues that until they affect you, you might not know how that's shaping who has access to public space. But Brisbane is, a lot of our public spaces are also increasingly commodified, so it can become harder to find spaces where you can just freely hang out in public space without being expected to buy something. And and these are things that, that play out really unevenly. So we look at this in terms of things like the racialization of things like move on laws and, and who might be more or less likely to be found to be a public nuisance in a public space. All of these things all are all really tangled because up. Because they may about. only have a few options for places they can go exactly. in a public space. Exactly. It's almost like the people who need public spaces the most are the are often have the most prescribed kind of access to them. And I imagine there's a historical aspect to this as well, Natalie. I mean, it just came into my mind, but I think of the boundary streets around West End and areas like that. So, I mean, it was quite specifically laid out in a historical sense. But as you say, it's uh, it can be more subtle than that as well as, as we evolve. Yeah, absolutely. So the boundary streets are that really clear example of, of the ways in which um, Australian cities are founded on on 
colonialism, on apartheid, on theft. But yeah, we, we do also see it with things like the disproportionate criminalisation of, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people when they're using public space um, for, for any purpose, really. But then we also see it in other ways, like the commodification of housing, the dominance of the private rental sector. You know, there's heaps of evidence that shows that if you are in the private rental sector, then you are then subject to all potential forms of discrimination, right, that, that, that might be might be an issue because there's a bunch of people making subjective choices about who they want to rent to in a highly competitive market. And we, you know, have a very underfunded uh, social and public housing sector in Queensland and in Australia more broadly. And all of these things can really shape how you're able to make a life for yourself in cities, how you're able to claim and build a sense of belonging and connection and build community. All these things are really important for our lives. They're the kind of things that, that make our lives worth living and how how we support each other, especially for people who, who are facing different forms of disadvantage and exclusion. I'm really starting to reflect on all the cities I've lived in now and starting to think about why they all look so different. It makes a lot more sense, yeah. actually, when I think of you know Adelaide that I was in for a while and how totally different that looks. And it's not just a climate aspect. It's mm. uh, that interplay of of how these cities were planned and how it's evolved. And yeah, and I mean, you know, Adelaide's a really interesting example because it was, you know, quite famously one of the few, like, very, very, very deeply planned On cities. a grid. On a grid. And you know where north and west is all the time. In very systematically planned. <laughs> Ref- you know, that, that, that green belt around the city reflects um, a particular kind of 18th century idea about how cities should be should be built and shaped. Whereas Brisbane was never actually expected to get as big as it did. It's very erratic, isn't yeah. it? You've only got to look at all the one-way streets in the CBD yeah. to kind of realise, wow, this really grew out of nothing, really. And some of the original plans were for Brisbane to have like much grander boulevards and, and much more kind of space and things like that. But it was just like, oh, no, Brisbane, it's just going to be a country town, you know? You don't have to worry about it. We don't <laughs> yeah, need to plan too much. That. Exactly. But Sydney has a similar kind of feel in the middle. Strangely, I know there's mm. a harbour, but it's that erratic kind of, oh, OK, here's a, here's a one-way street out of nowhere and I don't have any idea where this <laughs> this road is taking me but I'll just go with it. It's interesting isn't it that, that a culture can create this but it mm. also does have that ongoing effect I think as well. Yeah it does I mean I think one of the one of the really interesting interactions it's very clear in, in a lot of Australian cities that you know had their big booms and big expansion times in the post-war period right along the time that the private automobile became a thing that, that structured many people's lives and it became a thing that was within reach of a lot of people and so we built these sprawling suburban cities that are actually very hard to provide services to, very hard to provide good infrastructure and are in many ways really alienating and sometimes isolating places. And I don't say that to... I know lots of people like living in those spaces and, and that's wonderful. But there's a there's a lot that gets missed in, in those areas. It's also really tightly wrapped up with you know, these kind of normative ideas about how people live, you know, in these single family dwellings, you know, with a mum and a dad and 2.5 kids and maybe a dog and a cat and a fish, but this particular idea about what a family is, and then that blows out to create this spatial structure. And then if you want to live differently in that space, if you want to find a different way to live in a suburb, a more communal way, a more collective way in an extended family situation or with friends... It can actually be really difficult to do that. It's quite quite hard to retrofit suburbs. And you know when you're doing that that you are different. And yes. it's not that somebody's necessarily told you that. They're, obviously, I can see there's structural elements to that as well. Yeah, there's structural and spatial elements and they sort of... 
they create possibilities, possible ways of living, but they also foreclose them too. Or if not foreclose them, you're very aware, as you say, that you're pushing up against the grain as you try and find those ways to live. So is politics a big influencer in this space as well, the political uh, sphere of the time, I suppose? Yeah, hugely political. I mean, urban planning, human geography, these are these are probably first and foremost political activities. In cities... I have a particular take on cities that the way that we're the predominant ways that we frame our life in cities is they're they're for capital, they're not for people, right? Cities exist in ways or we've built them the way we regulate them is to create certain kinds of profit, to organise and manage that certain kind of profit, to enclose and create certain forms of capital. Which of course sounds silly because of course most of us in Australia live in cities, so of course we might be under the impression that they're for us. But then when you start to try and find a way to live, when you start to interact with the planning system that's never envisaged your way of life or your style of living, if you can't afford to buy into these markets, which more and more of us can't afford to buy into these markets, um, then all of a sudden you start to get the feeling that this place you live actually might not be for you. And you are in fact systematically excluded from having a strong influence over the, the spaces that you live and work. And a strong connection to where you live in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. If, if you're in the situation where you have to move really frequently or where you have to, you know, you know that you're in that kind of really precarious housing situation. And, and you know, this also goes hand in hand with people's jobs as well. Increasingly precarious employment means that you might have to be more mobile for your job as well as in terms of how that's reproduced in the housing sector. All of that can make it really hard to, to put roots down, to, to get to know your neighbours, to build the kind of the social networks or create the kinds of community spaces that you want to be part of. Again, I think of uh, friends of mine, I think you've moved eight times in three years. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's not just their fault. No, oh gosh, by the sound no. of it. Absolutely not. <laughs> not no, that no. I would have ever said that to them, but but I think they can take on that blame and go, oh, totally. what am I doing wrong? Like, uh, we, you know, we've got our kids and we're just trying to stay close to where their schools are, mm. but, but our work is not fitting that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is this is one of the really important things to highlight is is I think we can then kind of get caught in this idea that we have to produce ourselves as these very good responsible rental subjects, right? Like we have to we have to find ways to be good employees, good renters because we're trying to make ourselves fit in this very inequitable system because of course we do experience like if we fail to fit we're, we're going to be the ones who feel the brunt of that. Um, but I think the really important thing to remember is that these are actually shared experiences. We might feel them as individuals, but really they're, they're shared. They've been collectively produced by the systems we find ourselves in and, and the laws that shape um, the way our cities are managed and governed and commodified and, and controlled. And so there's a lot of people in those situations. Um, so as much as they are, exper- are experienced as individuals, they're also collective. Sounds like this fits in with your more recent uh, publication as well, mm. Natalie, about... Particularly the last election and what we can learn and read from that. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been I've been working for a while around these issues of I guess around the the feelings associated with with our our present political and ecological crisis, right? Like this kind of big mood that many of us find us in that's shaped so much by experiences of precarity, of a sense of impending climate doom, as well as those those bigger and and like they feel really intractable intractable some of these political problems right and the fact that we had an election where basically nothing changed um is is deeply frustrating for many and and so i I do a lot of work with um the kind of grassroots actors and community organizations ngos who, who are trying to transform cities to be more just and to be more sustainable be more equitable places and more inclusive um and to address some of those real issues of precarity that many of us find ourselves in 
but even amongst those organisations, I've begun to get the sense that, that there's a lot of anxiety around the situations we're in and a lot of what I call political depression, which is a sense that actually the old ways that we used to set about making changes in politics by, you know, organising petitions and going to rallies and, and maybe getting engaged in electoral politics, that that's actually not working. Because a lot of these people had a sense that even if we did have a, have a change of government, actually nothing much would have changed in terms of their lives. And, and when it comes down to it, they're, they're probably right, you know. <laughs> when it comes to things like housing policy, when it comes to things like climate policy, there are differences between the two major parties, but there's not that much. Mm. <laughs> not in terms they're of... very the, fine details. Yeah. <laughs> and, and when, and when, you're, when you are, as, as many of the people I work with are, really convinced that we need a very transformative shift in the way that we manage ourselves and our lives in, in terms of both ecology and social justice... A switch between the two major parties, uh, you know, that's not really inspiring. That doesn't really feel like change anymore. And so a lot of these groups, a lot of these people, a lot of these activists are struggling with these feelings like they're, they're really passionate, they're really engaged in the fight, and yet they're not really sure what hope looks like or feels like anymore. So what were some of your conclusions from that? I mean, how do we move from, from that point? I think um, certainly in environmental politics for a long time, we've been really animated by this idea of a politics of hope. And we've been told for a really long time that it's important that we express a hopeful point of view, that we are kind of have a hopeful affect, like that we perform hope and that we're very like upbeat, hopeful people because you, you, know, you, know, you can't recruit people with misery, which is probably true. However, um, that's really hard if you're not feeling hopeful. And in fact, if you're feeling despair or grief, because the thing is we've actually lost a bunch of things, right? There are whole ways of living that have passed from us on this earth. And, you know, I, um, reading the work of people like Nayuka Gori and Claire Coleman, both First Nations writers, you know, they said that for them, colonialism was the apocalypse and that the end of the world for them, you know, was, was a bit over 200 years ago for their people. And of course, they're still here, right? Like, which, which suggests that even after the end of the world, there's still the possibility to organise and create and, and build things. But I think it's really important that instead of just rushing forward to hope all the time and like beating people over the head with it, sometimes we have to sit with the idea for a beat that actually there are species that have gone extinct. There are species that are not yet extinct, but that are impossible for us to save. The kinds of futures that many of us, especially especially those of us from relatively privileged middle class backgrounds, the kinds of futures that we were maybe raised on are probably not available to us anymore. And maybe that's that there's still possibilities there, right? And and in some ways it might be good because some of those futures were frankly really unjust and really inequitable, really inequitable and really polluting and dangerous in a whole bunch of ways. But there is still a grief and a mourning that has to happen before we can start to imagine other ways to live, other ways to do this. And, and I think it's in that imagining and these coming up with new stories that maybe we'll be able to grow some hope for each other again. But I, that's a question I'm still asking. I can feel the grief here. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting time to yeah. be in this research. It, it is a really interesting time to be in it. It's, it's a hard time to be mm. in it. Um, Sounds I, quite pivotal though. It, I, I hope so. Mm. And I mean, I, I think when it comes down to it, we don't have good practices around how we grieve for 
I mean, actually, grief in general, frankly. Like, I think. Well, that's I think, right. Um, Particularly think, from a Western perspective, I, I suppose, if I could yeah. imprint that on it. But yes, grieving is not really our strong point, I would have said. Yeah, no, <laughs> totally. I don't think we're very good at talking about it. I think we have this idea that, you know, you, you it's a private thing that mm. you, you take away and you deal with by yourself for a little bit and pick up and struggle on. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, whereas I think. I think that doesn't quite get at the existential nature of what what many people are dealing with. I know this isn't everyone's experience by any means, but but there there are a lot of people who are experiencing this as a kind of existential crisis um, or crises. Actually, I feel <laughs> they're compounding and multiple. Um, and and we've got to find ways to to hold each other in that space. I think, and I guess create create the kinds of spaces where we can care for each other. Create the kind of communities where we can care for each other through that. And maybe realise that that if the future is just going to be more of these kinds of struggles, which I think is probably true. Uh, one of my research participants said when I when I asked them about you know how how they conceive of the future, they just said, "Oh, the future is more intensified struggle," which sounds exhausting. There's something hopeful there too, though, right? Because when you're struggling, you're struggling collectively. You're struggling with people. You're striving for something. You know, as long as you're struggling, there's something to be saved, right? There's there's work to be done. That's that's good in a way, as much as it makes me tired and I want to go lie down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what about gender politics? How does that play into these spaces? Mm. Does it have a place here, Natalie? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I. Identity and social location has a huge place. Gender's a huge part of that in terms of thinking about how we bear these issues. I mean, so to, to circle back to what we're talking about, the start of the conversation mm-hmm. around environmental justice um, and toxicity, for instance. You know, I talked about how um, how people of colour and, and, um, and poorer communities are more likely to be disproportionately exposed to environmental harm. Women are also more likely to be exposed to environmental harm because a lot of the studies done on toxicity and what safe levels of pollutants are were done on men's bodies which often interact with pollutants quite differently due to things like uh, relative muscle mass and fat storage and things like that. Mm. Um, and I'm talking quite binary terms, and I apologise for that. So women are actually disproportionately exposed. And uh, in, in many ways, also we see women and also non-binary people often doing a lot more community care work, particularly in these kinds of um, maybe alternative spaces whether that's sort of environmental or activist spaces or spaces organising around left-wing activism in different forms. There's a lot of care work to be done in communities. There always is. And that is not disproportionately... Uh, that is not that is not proportionally shared, right? There's a lot, of, which is not to say that people aren't learning and working really hard. And and obviously in these spaces where you know these quite progressive or radical spaces, you, you expect to see maybe a more sophisticated gender politics. I think so. I think yeah. many people would expect it to be a bit more of the utopian even split, perhaps. Definitely not the even split. Better, like for sure, better. And I think maybe more people have a language to talk about things like emotional labour or care labour or issues of burnout and things like that, maybe there's more room to talk about it. But there is also still in some spaces a reluctance towards acknowledging some of the ways that we experience these phenomena differently. So we might all have a really robust intellectual critique of things like of capitalism or settler colonialism or even patriarchy, but sometimes it's hard for people to then think about how those things also play out at a smaller group level. You know, the left-wing and environmental spaces in Australia, if they're not explicitly led by First Nations people, they are overwhelmingly white, you know, overwhelmingly white. And that does lead to some real issues. And we've been seeing seeing some of that played out with, with Extinction Rebellion, for instance, where there's been some real conflicts and, and disagreements around 
the way that uh, white activists are able to engage with police in the ways that would be really dangerous for some Indigenous people and people of colour, right? Because we are not all treated the same by um, by police, by the state. So some of that unevenness is not always not always recognised. Like we can sort of diagnose it when it's out there, but when you want to talk, well, actually in this space, this is how I'm experiencing these power structures as how it's playing out. Those conversations still have to happen and they're still really hard. That's fascinating because I can even think of the media coverage of these things, I think, illustrates that as well. Mm. Um, and yes, people perhaps gluing themselves to you know public buildings or to roads or whatever. I, I think the media would have been a quite different response if these had been people of, of colour involved. And, and it, you don't see that so far, or we certainly haven't seen much of it. Yeah, and I mean, I think I think that there are real frontline actions being taken by, by First Nations people um, who, who are have always been land protectors, the first land and water protectors. Um, you know, and we see these struggles playing out um, locally at, out at Deeping Creek, where um, Yugarapal elders have been, been holding that land and protecting that land for, for months and months now in a, in a permanent camp. And of course, down in Japarong country, down in Victoria, where there are um, people protecting the birthing trees from a highway that's going to save like three minutes of, yeah, anyway, <laughs> a very confusing planning issue right there. But so I think, I think part of this disjunct that happens is, is that sometimes white environmentalists won't recognise environmentalism until they're leading it or until they're doing it. This is harsh. I'm, you know, I want to say that, like, I have been at some of these actions. I really do support direct action for the environment. I think this is really, really critical and really important. Um, It's also really important that we think about um, the internal uh, social positioning and how that affects our movements and how that affects who's organising, who's leading... um, who's holding the megaphone, you know, who's who's sharing their point of view, who's coming up with strategies and tactics. That's really important. And we can't... Um, we've got to be really careful about assuming that, you know, look, uh, I'm a white middle-class lecturer. I can go out and yell at a cop and, you know what, nothing's happened to me. But that's a really risky move for other people to take and, you know, we've got to be really careful about that. Oh, fascinating. So uh, well, what have you got coming up for research-wise in the near future, Natalie? Yeah, so just talking at this point, still talking more to people about their experiences of political depression and ecological anxiety and, and hope and despair and failure. I'm gathering up lots of stories um, in the hopes to find answers to some of the questions I have been unable to answer in our chat so far. And I'm really hoping to turn these things into things like um, like a practical handbook and workbook that can be used by community organisers um, and grassroots organisations to think through some of these questions. Oh, and to make them more inclusive? Or? To make them more inclusive and also to think about how we can support each other through these experiences of burnout and despair when they happen in our movements. Because I think what often happens is people just withdraw and then they leave, they get burned out and they're like, I can't deal with this anymore don't have the hope, don't have the capacity to sustain me. So so we lose a lot of people that way. I think it's really important that we figure out how to hold that space for each other. And really put a name to it. Really put a name to it and just be like, hey, this is not a thing, this is not a personal failing of your part that you're feeling really sad and anxious and depressed. Because actually that's, you know, another one of my fantastic interviewees said, anxiety and depression is a really natural response to the world as it is. It makes a lot of sense. And it's about figuring out that these things are, again, they are shared experiences. They are produced in many ways by, you know, this is not like, not just an individual thing that you're going through. They're produced by the worlds we live in, by the way that our cities are organised, and by the very real, very real threats that are already, like climate change is already 
hurting people, already causing death, right? These are not abstract things to be a bit worried about every so often. If you're taking this really hard, then yeah, that makes a lot of sense to take this really hard and we just got to find the support for each other. What did you make of the climate change protests of recent times within mm. that context? Yeah, I mean, it's such a mixed bag of... Pol- I mean, I, I, it's so great to see so many people out on the streets, right? Like, it's really, really fantastic. Um, I think... There's, there's a really mixed bag of, of politics there, and, and actually both in terms of the climate strike and Extinction Rebellion, where I think you've got a bunch of people there whose the main motivation of their actions is the idea that we need to pressure governments to do the right thing. And that's, that's why they're out on the streets and that's why they're gluing themselves to roads and that's really great. There's also people who I think, and this is probably the critique that I'm more aligned in myself, that are actually saying that we, we need a much more transformative approach, that, that actually we can't make the system of settler colonial capitalism that we've got, we can't make that just socially or ecologically. We can't, make, we can't build a climate just world without fundamentally changing the ways that we organise property. Um, the ways we organize, you know, the way that we organize space, um, and the ways that we distribute scarce resources to each other. Like we actually can't get to a climate just world by, you know, everyone buying green bags or reusable coffee. I mean, we, yes, we should definitely do those things, but we can't consume our ways to a to a more climate just world. So, I think in that way, there's there's a very broad spectrum of people involved in those movements, and it'll be really interesting to see how those conversations continue to play out. I think it's really fantastic to see people back out on the streets again, and 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 I think it's been also really great to see how how the climate strike kind of narrative has forced people to have these conversations in their workplace as well. So instead of just, you know, obviously that's a privilege as well to be able to say to your boss, hey, I want to go to this climate strike and, and not get the sack, but but I think it is really important that we're having these conversations in our workplaces as well because because climate change is a labour issue as well like climate change is a union issue and so we need to be thinking about it in those terms as well and it's brought that conversation into a more public space absolutely yeah and uh, I know you do your, your lecturing and teaching here mm. at Griffith University, but I, I just wanted to mention too, I think it's fascinating the work you do with the open universities mm. uh, because it seems to be very in, interrelated to your research and and uh, how people learn in, in certain spaces. So you're taking it to the people a bit. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm involved with a wonderful community called Brisbane Free University. And the, the kind of underpinning idea of that is that education should be freely accessible to anyone who wants it. And that we also need to think about who we decide knows things and, and the kind of politics of knowledge, I guess. And just recognising that actually a lot of people know a lot of things and it's that this knowledge doesn't have to be locked up and, in, and institutionalised in particular ways. So Brisbane Free University has a couple of strands to it. We do public lectures in public places, so these will be on a variety of topics, always in a public space so people can come along. We try and find spaces that are, are physically as accessible as possible and anyone's welcome to just drop in, hear some people talk, contribute to a discussion. It's really wonderful. We have a reading group that meets weekly. We try and read the kind of counter-canonical texts, like the the other philosophy that you wouldn't necessarily read if you took a philosophy course, but primarily things written by women, by non-binary people, by people of colour, thinkers of colour, Indigenous people. And yeah, think about how those texts uh, inform us about our own lives and, and what we can do with them. And we also have a writing group for people who are struggling to write because writing is hard and we, we get together every so often and just um, try and support each other through the writing process. Oh, sounds fantastic. And can all those things be found 
you can online on Facebook and things. Yeah, find follow the Brisbane Free University Facebook page that has all the best info about our upcoming events. Thank you so much, Natalie, for joining us on the Gender Card podcast. Is there anything else that you'd like to mention before we wrap up for today? If you're um, interested, you can find a link to my paper on Twitter. I'm just Dr. Nat Osborne on Twitter. Um, The paper is called For Still Possible Cities, A Politics of Failure for the Politically Depressed. And I talk about some of these ideas in that. (laughs) Good to talk about the politically depressed. Thank you very much for joining us, Natalie. Thanks so much, Nance. That was Dr. Natalie Osborne, lecturer and researcher at the Griffith School of Environment Urban Research Program. And that's all for this episode of The Gender Card. This podcast was produced for the Gender Equality Research Network by Nance Haxton with production assistance from Michael Adams. Stay up to date with this Griffith University podcast on SoundCloud. Speak to you again soon.